0: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
1: Novel Before we begin, this series features remarkable stories told by remarkable people. Some of the events they discuss, and some of the words they use to describe their experiences, can be... How shall I say this? Quite colourful. This programme contains strong language and descriptions of an adult nature. And this episode contains reference to suicide, which some listeners might find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised.
2: We're all gonna die, so why get neurotic about it? You know, it's ridiculous. I mean, whether you identify male, female, whatever, so what? We are all going to die. We're only here for a limited amount of time. And rather than say, oh, I'm different to you and I'm this and I'm that, you know, let's come together, destroy all in authority, take over the world, destroy capitalism and live happily ever after. (laughs) This is David
1: Hoyle. Hi, David. It's very nice to have you.
2: Hi, Sean. it's wonderful to be here.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen you since before the pandemic started. I think the last time would have been
2: at the Royal (sighs) Vauxhall Tavern before everything closed down, so. At the beautiful Vauxhall Tavern. I know, I can't believe it's nearly three years of this ridiculous way of life, isn't it?
1: David is a 59-year-old performer and artist based in Manchester. I first met David in 2018 when I used to open for him during my brief stint as a cabaret performer and stand-up comic. I actually spent my own 30th birthday as a warm-up act for David's show. He is, as you might have guessed already, incredibly funny, with a very dark and dry sense of humour. This humour has taken him from a pub quiz host to having his own television series, with many stage performances in between. When you see David on stage, he is captivating. It feels like he was born to have command of an audience, to use the old cliche. But I think it's more than that. Performing consumes David, it sustains and invigorates him. But it's also one of the things that has pushed him closest to the edge. From the team at Novel, this is Call Me Mother, a collection of conversations with queer trailblazers. I'm Sean Fay. In each episode, I'm talking to a different queer pioneer whose story teases out a nuance of our shared LGBTQ plus history. By telling these stories, we'll show the richness and wisdom of our queer community through the ages. And in each tale from the past, we'll find strength for the present day. In this episode, the inimitable David Hoyle.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, and all of us, clever enough to have transcended gender. It's wonderful that we're here and that we haven't talked ourselves in the last few weeks, feeling that life, the world, is going to hell in a handcart. It's so beautiful to see you all, looking lovely.
1: This is David on stage in London at the Soho Theatre in spring 2022 for his latest show, The Ten Commandments. The show is David's rewriting of the Christian commandments he grew up with.
2: It was a, a throwback to my childhood, the idea that religion is the spine of your life, you know, the backbone of it. But of course, we can rewrite things and we have to have the freedom to rewrite things or even reject. Commandment number one. Thou shalt tolerate living in a (laughs) rat-infested dystopia.
1: The so-called dystopia David first lived in, or what we might call the place where he grew up, was also a top UK holiday destination.
2: I'm from Blackpool, which is a seaside resort on the northwest coast of England. I'm hurtling towards the age of 60, so I can recall Blackpool sort of in its heyday when people were more prosperous than they are now. And working people had jobs. And so, therefore, they'd go to Blackpool and perhaps stay a week, even a fortnight, and just let the hair down and have a wonderful time. Having an ice cream, having a burger, you know, one can recall the smell of frying onions, you know, it seemed to permeate the air. Candy floss machines, amusement arcades. You know, it was all available in Blackpool.
1: Growing up in 1960s Blackpool, with its cabaret shows, theatres and bars, David was surrounded by performers. And so he soon developed his own ambitions to entertain.
2: I was very aware that people came to Blackpool to be entertained. And I can remember, I think it was my grandma asked me, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I think I was about eight years old. And I said, I want to make people laugh. And it was David's grandma who said, great, go for it. I was very fortunate, spending a lot of time with my grandma. I'm the youngest, I have other siblings. And so therefore, my grandma very kindly sort of took me in and uh, we just hit it off. And she gave me absolute, unconditional love which in those days was absolutely tremendous. And she knew that she was a bit flamboyant and enjoyed dressing up and all the rest of it. Rather than condemn me and drive me to suicide, she encouraged it. And she was such a lovely, warm-hearted and encouraging lady. And I will be eternally grateful. I think without her, I probably wouldn't be here now. I would have thrown in the towel many, many moons ago. I felt there was a lot of pressure on me to be gender-conforming, you know, to be into football and women and all this sort of thing, you know, and it just wasn't in my nature to be like that. And in those days, people were quite violent, and I think they actually expected that the more they hit you and the crueler and nastier they were to you, the more chance they had of making you heteronormative. And I've always... I mean, literally always found the heteronormative totally 100% repugnant. A big part of that repugnant
1: heteronormativity to David were the expectations around religion. As a child, he attended church every week. He sang in the church choir. The teachings of Christianity were embedded in his psyche.
2: I found that very, very oppressive, you know, because of things like, God is watching you in every thought, word, and deed. It's very, very intense. And as a child, I found that particularly difficult to deal with. The idea that my mind was being read and that God knew that I was finding these people attractive and I wanted to get close to them, but it was evil and it was wrong. It was crossing boundaries, you know, there were lines drawn and I wanted to go beyond those lines. There wasn't the words when I was a child, but I bitterly resented the idea that I was either a boy, I certainly didn't want to become a man, I'm happy to just be a human being. And for me, that's what it's all about.
1: Today, David identifies as non-binary, but still uses the pronoun he. But it wasn't until David was a teenager that he was able to begin to explore this identity.
2: I started to look for a more fulfilling relationship with people with a similar body to myself. At about 16 or 17, I probably was quite precocious. And of course Blackpool had a number of gay bars there, so it was just a case of getting into them. He went downstairs into a windowless room and it was absolutely fantastic because of that wonderful moment when you realise, oh, I'm not the only one and there's people similar to you. It was like a chosen family, I suppose, really. It was also here in these basement bars
1: that, as a teenager, David got his taste for performing. He started doing a few comedy sets and songs on the stage there but soon turned his sights to the famous Bellevue in Central Blackpool, a popular entertainment venue, pestering the manager there for a slot on stage.
2: And he said, yes, come on a Sunday and I'll give you a few minutes. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I've absolutely no idea. I said, I just know that I want to get on the stage and let's just see what happens. And so I sang a few songs, you know, things like Hey Big Spender and uh, The Lady is a Tramp and that sort of thing. And I just sort of wafted around with the scarf. I mean, this is going to date me because one of the comedic aspects of it was that I was claiming to be the illegitimate offspring of the Duke of Edinburgh, or I should say the late Duke of Edinburgh, and the late Dorothy Squires, both of whom are no longer with us.
1: When he'd had his fill of Blackpool's gay bars and ballrooms, David decided to head abroad. In the late 1970s, he'd save up for interrailing tickets from his day job as a shop assistant and take long train trips into Europe to explore. And Berlin, which then was still split by the wall into East and West, was a particular favourite.
2: So go into the East get on the trams, get on the buses, whatever, get as far away from Checkpoint Charlie as you can and take it in. And whilst I was there, I saw fashion shows, I saw all sorts of things, of course, beer gardens. you change £5 pounds into East German money and you couldn't spend it because everything was so cheap, you know. And then you had to make sure that you got out of Checkpoint Charlie by midnight, I think it was, and occasionally it would be a bit later and that was quite worrying. I live to tell the tale. And these trips allowed David to meet other people who,
1: like him, despised and derided the
2: mainstream. I think what was important, you you see people being happy and not as obsessed with convention and not trying to fit in and not saying, I'm fitting in more than you. That whole respectability game that I felt people were playing here, you know, I'm more respectable than you. I'm more restricted than you. I refuse to allow my imagination to flow more than you. I am more boring than you. I am closer to death than you. That wasn't as obvious on the continent, you know, when I was traveling around Europe. So it was the people that I met who weren't obsessed with being conventional and conforming. And David's rejection of the conventional
1: was about to catapult him, rather ironically, into the mainstream. That's coming up after the break.
2: I'd worked solidly from the age of 10 until 21 in Blackpool. So I just thought, you know, I think it's time you retire. In the early 80s, full of wonder about the world
1: and boredom about his hometown of Blackpool, David decided to head out to Pastures New in London.
2: Go to London. Get on that train at Blackpool North, which I did. I had a carrier bag with a dinner plate in.
0: Ready to pop the question. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
2: A knife and a fork and, I think, a mug and then just some clothes. And I went down and I stayed for three years. And it was a very intense time. I remember starting out sleeping on somebody's kitchen floor in Islington and then I was able to get a flat myself. And it was here, in London,
1: where David really began to focus on making it as a performer. But... In order to do that, he needed to find a place to perform. One venue in particular captured his attention, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, based in South London, that became an LGBTQ cabaret venue in the 1980s. It was the preferred stage of popular British drag acts like Paul O'Grady's Lily Savage, who had just begun a residency there.
2: What I used to do in the early 80s was go on a Thursday to a show called Stars of the Future, and that was Lily Savage's show, and uh, it was like a talent night, you know, and it was absolutely hysterical. Now, in those days, I found Lily quite an intimidating character, you know, so I always used to stand at the back just near the exit because I'd be terrified that she'd want to speak to me or something like that. But I just fell in love with the place and I was absolutely hypnotised by Lily Savage. And I kept going every Thursday, little realising that one day I myself, with your good self, would mount that stage, so to speak.
1: But we're not there yet. Long before David and I could mount that stage, David's time living in London was cut short.
2: What sadly happened was HIV and AIDS made its horrendous presence felt. And a lot of us had to sort of leave London, really, because that life was no longer viable or tenable, really. You lost so many people that you were close to that it became quite harrowing.
1: So after only a short spell in London, David left the capital and moved to Manchester. But the scars of the AIDS epidemic
2: remained. It made me angry, there was a residual anger there, you know, it just seemed so unjust. And of course, we always know that the best sort of people die young and we're left with all the detritus. You can think of all the people that you wish were dead and they just seem to live, they you know, they don't seem to come close to death. So I was quite angry about that and I thought, what am I going to do with this anger? And that got me onto the stage. I was working as a pub cleaner and as luck would have it a friend of mine jackie haynes who's very gifted with fabric jackie was having a show of her work and asked me if i'd go on the microphone to describe the various outfits as we were going up and down the catwalk which i did again as luck would have it the management of that particular pub, the old steam brewery, were in the house that evening. And the following day, they said, David, you were very good on the microphone last night. We're thinking, would you be prepared to host a quiz? And quick as a flash, I said, yes, certainly. Well, I started the quiz nights. I just have trainers on, jeans, and a t shirt. But I noticed that as the weeks went on, a little bit of nail varnish, a little bit of makeup, until, you know, basically I had two kilos of makeup on at each show. And of course, Jackie was helping with the costumes, and it became more and more sort of outrageous and sort of almost outlandish.
1: Soon, David had created a radical alter ego called the Divine David. He'd walk on stage for the quiz night with bright makeup and a sparkling costume, saying and doing the most outrageous things, which quickly became a hit with audiences. From his weekly pub quizzes, David soon started performing as The Divine David in Manchester's theatres, where he built an even bigger following. After a few years, he took his act back to London, making it on stage at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, delighting audiences with his jet black humour and Chardonnay dry wit. What began as an impromptu side job had turned into a flourishing performing career, the thing he'd always wanted. And then, in 1998, The Divine David hit the big time with a dedicated TV series on Channel 4 in the UK.
2: The makeup was described as car crash, actually, Sean. (laughs) Uh, And somebody said, like Liza Minnelli on acid, you know, which I think is a fair description, really. As for the shows, they were quite anarchic and chaotic and a lot of spontaneity, a lot of improvisation. And just reacting to what's going on, say, in the media, what's going on in the world, and just trying to address these issues that affect all of us,
1: How did you find that change of context to go from these very specific venues where people had come to reaching a much more mass audience, perhaps? What was that adjustment like?
2: Wow. Well, it was a bit weird, really. It was quite a strange change, you know, ending up on the television. was. uh, I mean, occasionally I I sort of felt a little bit out of my depth because I hadn't realised the effect it would have. And not all of the effect was positive for David. People would send weird letters and that sort of thing. And that was quite um, an eye-opener, really, how hostile people can be. You know, if you touch on a nerve, that was something I wasn't prepared for.
1: Despite the angry letters, the show grew a loyal following. And then, at the height of success, when the Divine David was breaking out of avant-garde theatre and into a more public consciousness, David decided to end the character.
2: I wondered with the Divine David character where I could take this particular persona other than actually killing myself on stage. I'd really sort of done everything, really. And I wanted to live. I felt I was sort of burnt out with it all, really. I wasn't living a particularly healthy life. I think I needed time to heal and a new way of thinking, a new way of being.
1: In July 2000, at a performance at Streatham International Ice Arena in London, David killed off the Divine David in front of a packed house. Performance is quite an important factor in the lives of a lot of the people that we've spoken to for this programme, but your relationship with performance seems quite... Complicated, maybe that it's restorative and also destructive to you sometimes. And, and why do you think
2: that is? Because I put my whole self into it. And in a way, I've got nothing else other than expressing myself and being creative. There isn't really much in my life. And it's the complete focus of my every breath. You know, sometimes when I'm not on stage, when I'm not doing something like that, or even not doing something like this. I find life quite difficult. It can be very lonely. I have a tendency to isolate myself. I'm not particularly extrovert in my so-called private life. So there is that dichotomy.
1: When David publicly killed off the character that had made him famous, he hoped it would allow him to live a healthier life. But instead, he became isolated and this delicate balance in his character between introvert and extrovert tipped.
2: I took six years off from performing. I'm very proud to say that I'm no stranger to mental health problems. And the reason as I say I'm proud to have mental health problems is I think if we live in one of the most fascistic, nasty, horrific systems that anybody could ever possibly devise, namely capitalism, and also the expectations that are placed on people just based on what the toilet parts might look like, then of course that's going to give birth to mental health problems.
1: In his six-year break from the stage and screen... David focused on his art, designing a garden installation for the foyer of the Contact Theatre in Manchester, amongst other projects, and restoring himself from years of riotous performances. And then, in 2005, he decided he was ready to entertain again.
2: A call came through that they'd like me to sort of audition for a pilot of a television series. And I thought... Because it was written by Chris Morris, whose work I completely admired, you think of Brass Eye and the World Today and this sort of thing. I thought, yeah, I'll do that. So I went along. Unfortunately, I got the part, and we made the pilot. And then, of course, the series Nathan Barley came from that. On the show,
1: which was a sitcom about an aspiring internet personality, David played an eccentric musician, Doug Rocket.
2: And so that was my reintroduction to performing. And I thought, well, if you're gonna do this and end up on national television again, you might as well mount the stage. And so I created a show with Sarah Frankham at Manchester's Royal Exchange Theatre. And for one night only in the studio, I did a show called SOS. That then was taken on by the Soho Theatre and became quite successful, well, very successful, actually, and then I ended up at the Sydney Opera House. We live in a society where people are very rarely given a second chance, and if you've shown any what they consider to be frailty or vulnerability, then they can write you off. So I'm very grateful that when I did decide to return to performance, I've been doing it ever since. Commandment number three. Thou must stay alive, even if it's just a spite of
1: David's most recent show, The Ten Commandments, wrapped up a successful run in April 2022, and his love of performance is stronger than ever.
2: It's a magical experience, performing and going onto the stage, and it's revitalising, you know, so even if in the wings you feel that you're on your knees and broken, it's a magical experience going out onto that stage, and it's restorative. Well, it it has been for me. And so performance-wise, I'm still getting a lot out of it, and I live for it, really. We talked earlier on about honouring people. I'd like to be honoured, but I'd like to hear that honour whilst I'm still breathing. (laughs) Otherwise, what is the point?
1: Do you think... Then that you have become any better with age at overcoming the struggles in mental health, whether it be mental health addiction, all of those things with age? Have you found you've got better at it?
2: I think I've got better at living with it. I'm no stranger to depression and anxiety. Will it propel me to take my own life? Probably not as much as it would have done, say, even a few years ago. One of the commandments that I recently did as part of my show was, thou must keep alive, even if it's only, to spite others. So I've got a quite tongue-in-cheek attitude to it all now. And it's how you learn to live with anxiety and depression and understand that it's quite natural to feel depressed. And what's important is we reach out to each other. Even talking to you now, Sean, I feel is therapeutic because I know that you're such an amazing person and you're big hearted and you're very, very intelligent. So this is what it's all about. And if anybody's listening to this and feeling depressed, as I say, I have a tendency to isolate myself, but now I'm finding it easier to reach out, to ask for help, to say, no, I'm not coping. I'm not managing. I just need a bit of reassurance. We need love in our lives, and we've all got to love one another because we are all going to die. I don't believe that life should be a horrific experience. It should be jolly and happy. We're here. You know, very few of us actually asked to be born, so here we are. And let's make it as easy and as pleasant as possible for both ourselves and, more importantly, other people.
1: David still performs regularly and is also a keen painter and artist, too. He's sticking to his mantra of keeping life easy and pleasant where he can. What advice would you give to your younger self? If the younger David were in front of you, what
2: would you say? Well, it's been a lifelong thing to try to get rid of guilt and shame, which is a killer and it overshadows everything. And I think I'm marbled with guilt and shame. So I'd say to my younger self, try to get rid of it. Try and transcend it. Don't allow it to poison your system. Don't allow it to not see the beauty in life, the magic in life. We have to see the beauty in everybody and in all parts of our queer family. Everybody who contains life is a beautiful, vital human being and please fight any feelings of inadequacy or ugly or not attractive. You are beautiful. As beautiful as the next person. Fact. If you've been affected by the issues
1: raised in this program, you can talk to someone in the UK by calling the Samaritans on 16-123. In the US, listeners can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline on 1800 273 8255. And you can find helplines local to you around the world at befrienders.org. Call Me Mother is hosted by me, Sean Fay, with production from Pippa Smith. Rosie Collier, Sean Glynn, and Max O'Brien are executive producers. Research by Megan Oyinka. Production management from Cherie Houston and Charlotte Wolfe. Austin Mitchell is our creative director of production. Mike Lee Rao is our managing editor. Gavin Haynes is our head of development. Willard Foxton is our creative director of development. Sound design, mixing, and scoring by Daniel Kempson. Music supervision by Pippa Smith and Nicholas Alexander. Our theme music is composed by Eli Block. Special thanks to Saskia Edwards, Oren Rosenbaum, Shelby Schenkman, and all the team at UTA. For more from Novel, visit novel.audio.